Welcome to Clinical Pearls. I'm Tracy White. I'm here with my co-host, BJ Hamakuli. Today, we are really excited to talk to our guests about care in our emergency rooms and kind of what's going on in, in that realm today. And BJ, I was wondering if you'd ever spent any time in the um, emergency department as a nurse. Yeah. So not actually as a nurse. Um, I did spend maybe uh, two and a half years uh, while going through nursing school as a patient care tech in the emergency room. So uh, I will say that was the best time that I had um, in healthcare in terms of uh, the things that you know I was doing. Everything was so exciting at the time, having to help the nurses and the physicians take care of patients. I really did enjoy my time during that uh, period. I'm sure you remember some of those nurses way back then teaching yeah, you and yeah. mentoring you. Mm -hmm. What an amazing experience. I did one one clinical rotation in the emergency room um, during nursing school, but that's been it. Yeah. Um, a very exciting episode. Melanie shares some really awesome things with us about the emergency departments. Um, and so we're just excited to talk to her. So thank you all for listening. The American College of Emergency Physicians, Emergency Nurses Association, and the National Alliance on Mental Illness have said that legislative and regulatory fixes are needed to reduce overcrowding in our emergency departments. This is happening because patients with higher acuity must reside in the emergency department with no other place to go. Emergency departments can't accommodate patients in a timely fashion, and that can result in direct patient harm and bad outcomes. Today, we welcome Dr. Melanie Holman. Dr. Holman has been a leader in emergency services for over four decades. She was instrumental in developing a large municipal nurse-managed um, occupational health urgent care clinic where she served as a director and lead NP. She championed development of the emergency nurse practitioner subspecialty at the University of Alabama Birmingham School of Nursing, where she is the associate professor teaching in the master's and doctoral education and serves as ENP subspecialty co-coordinator. She maintains her practice as an emergency nurse practitioner uh, locally. Dr. Holman, thank you for joining us. Thank you, BJ. All right, so that is a mouthful, and you've had a lot of accomplishments, Dr. Holman. Congratulations. <laughs> thank you, but when you've been around long enough, you'll um, see that everyone can do all these things too. <laughs> No, this is wonderful. This is wonderful. Uh, and we're very uh, fortunate to have you here. So tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get interested in emergency medicine? I don't know if you're old enough to um, recall this, but uh, I'm, I'm like a lot of older colleagues that I have. I was influenced by a television series called Emergency, where two paramedics, Gage and DeSoto, um, took care of patients in the Los Angeles area. Mm. And uh, it really impacted me as a kid. I was probably 10 years, 11 years old then mm -hmm. um, when I first noticed it. So that was really the beginning. But my, um, my uncle was a lieutenant with Birmingham Fire and Rescue. And um, my mother was 19 years younger than him. It was just the two siblings. And um, their father had died when my mother was eight. So my uncle Clarence was actually my grandfather figure, and uh, I, he was bigger than life. Uh, his his grandchildren were pretty much the same age as I am, maybe a little younger, mm -hmm. some of them. And so, just hearing, seeing, um, 
and knowing about the things that he had done really introduced me to pre-hospital emergency care behind that of Gage and DeSoto. So that made an impact. And my mother worked for Birmingham Police Department um, for part of her career. And she was a 911 operator back before there was 911. They were the emergency operators. Uh, and she ended up in dispatch. And just the um, information shared by her or watching her reaction to some of the great things that had been done to help people um, where EMS and fire had, uh, or EMS and police had worked together um, on some scenes really excited me. Not in a bad way, certainly, but it made me want to help yeah. or be a part of that. So that that was the beginning okay. um, for me. Didn't you start out as a paramedic? I did. As well? Well, you got to know this. <laughs> I was that um, student that would come to nursing school classes because, um, okay, I'm a student from UAB, right? But I would come here um, and I might come from an actual um clean up after a fire or something. So there were times that I would show up in my <laughs> my detail mm -hmm. from the fire department because there was no time and you couldn't be late for an exam yeah, or whatever. Right. It's very yeah. strict. And so I'm sure some of my instructors back then thought that I was kind of odd. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, yeah, that I started nursing school and then picked up uh, the paramedic program right when I was, or right before I actually started into pharmacology and oh, wow. some of the heavier courses. So I was doing both at the same time. Wow. And thank goodness for pharmacology and the paramedic program, because it certainly made me better at uh, working those calculations in the nursing program. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. What amazing education. And then you went on to become a nurse practitioner and I was wondering kind of what's that process for someone who wants to progress in their career and be a healthcare provider in the emergency room? I know you have the subspecialty. I, I really think, um, and, and I am biased, but I do believe that it makes a great difference to spend at least a couple of years in the emergency setting. Uh, I think being in other roles um, like PCT uh, is helpful, mm -hmm. but being an emergency nurse really lets you be exposed to so much and um, the organizational skills that you need to do the role. You know, it's, it's, usually fast-paced. It depends on the setting that you're in. It can wax and wane, but I think immersing as an emergency nurse in the role and being exposed to the types of patients we see and the good and the bad, et cetera, will give you a good idea of whether or not you want to invest in doing something in advanced practice yeah. um, and staying in that, that area. It's not for everybody. How long were you a nurse before uh, pursuing your advanced degree? Well, I was a clinical nurse specialist. I had mm -hmm. a trauma, adult health trauma was my area for that. Mm -hmm. And so I went back to school for my first master's degree when I was five years in. Okay. And um, that role, it was Wonderful. It was truly wonderful. I did end up um, doing the, um, it was called the Assistant Director of Emergency Services at UAB. Mm -hmm. 
And it was a combination of what we called a head nurse, which is a nurse manager now, um, and the um, educator. So that's how my CNS was used. And it, those two don't go together necessarily very well. You know, education and then managing too, because there's, they have two different sets of responsibilities. Yeah. So I did that first. And then when I found out that um, management, you know, I, I had my chance to be the head nurse of the ED which is what I had always thought I wanted to do. I found out that it wasn't my best fit. Um, uh, it's, I really wanted to have more direct patient care. You enjoy what the I did. patient care. Oh my gosh, I still yeah, love it. Yeah. yeah. So it, in our intro, we kind of talk about some issues and our episode is all about kind of what's happening in our emergency departments. And we thought you would just be the perfect person to talk to because of your long career and your passion for it. So it seems like we've been hearing for a while now about long waits and issues in emergency departments. And I was just kind of trying to decide if, like, how long has that been going on? Has this been a long time coming? Does it have something to do with COVID? Is that when it all started? Or kind of, kind of tell us about what's been happening in our emergency department. It really started well before COVID. Uh, that was just another piece of it. But, um, you know, we've always had to uh, hang on to our patients and take care of them until a particular type of bed was available or they went for some sort of study, et cetera, um, for their admissions. But um, the actual boarding and having to hold them that we see today, I feel like we were ramping up to that after the beginning of the 2000s, very slowly at the time. But even in Birmingham, we had um, three hospitals that closed relatively close together. And yeah. one of those uh, was another level one trauma center. So we had two of those in Birmingham. And so we could really handle, um, and, and I'm not saying we can't handle it now, but we were able to comfortably handle and move those patients, uh, trauma patients through, or very, very ill patients. Um, we lost the emergency department at Cooper Green in 2013, I think. And so that just for the downtown area of Birmingham really cut a lot of care out that was available in emergency services to, to make it uh, more balanced. Um, so that impacted, um, and I'm speaking just from here because boarding and holding patients and all the problems that we see in the United States, you see all over the world. Yeah. You know, it's not just mm -hmm. here, but I'm speaking from here. Yeah. It's, it's not just a Birmingham issue. <clears throat> no. Over, yeah. We lost a hospital on the west side of town too, Lloyd Nolan, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, in 2004, I think. And that, that emergency department uh, was excellent and took care of so much on the west side of town and coming forward into Birmingham. So, I think that's made um, a difference. We also, I think access to care is the biggest problem. Yeah. We, instead of getting better at access for patients to care, it seems like we're losing some of the access we had already built and we didn't have enough already for everyone anyway. Yeah. Um, I think that's a huge factor. The nursing shortage, has certainly, and it's not just nursing, there's other um, healthcare fields that are short. Um, that's made a difference. 
you don't have as many pre-hospital healthcare providers either anymore. That's a challenge. Mm. So it's there's there's a it's multifactorial, um, but it, those those are the biggest things that I personally can see that has made a difference. Mm. Um, so you you're using the word boarding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can you explain what that term is exactly with yes. respect to the ED? Okay, so um, it's a patient who remains in the emergency department after the patient's been admitted or set for di- um, discharge. Yeah. And so, um, really, it's it's a place that they are kind of caught in between where they really are intended to be inside the hospital. Yeah. Um, or if it's going to be a transfer, it might be someone that can't go from one emergency department to a hospital admission in another place mm-hmm. that has more of the facility that's needed for their care. Um, unfortunately, we have uh, not, we don't have enough um, behavioral health beds available to take care of a lot of our patients. And so, those in, um, individuals and those patients have to be uh, managed within the emergency department until we can find a place for them to go. And oftentimes um, the clinicians there are not fully trained on how to manage the behavioral health patients. Is that I, I think that it, problem? It, that may be the problem, but it also can be that we don't even have the correct facility. We don't have the correct um, uh, availability of care that is really need as, needed as a whole. It's not that um, that you can't learn how to take care of patients that have different diagnoses. It's just, do you have the entire team? Because you know, healthcare is a team score. Mm-hmm. It is not an individual thing. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have the right combination or the right facilities or can't offer a patient what they need, I mean, to me, that is where a lot of boarding happens anyway. We're having to hold them. And the emergency department is really meant for episodic care. It's not meant for holding folks. And so, you know, you have skill sets that are different between areas um, of interest for anyone in healthcare and what they do. So they're gonna know more about a particular kind of care uh, in an area that they're really interested in. Well, in the emergency department, we're very um, shallow and broad. And what I mean by that is we have to know a little bit about mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. pretty much. Mm-hmm. And so when you are bringing in very sick patients that require a very specific type of care, it may not be that we have the breadth as a team to take care of those folks. That's true. That's true. Not so, to the best of yeah. the best right. care that they should have, the well, excellent care they right, should have. Right. When you mentioned the episodic care, which I think would mean you stabilize them enough to get them to a place where they can be in an ICU for that week long stay for the care that they need longer term. That's not what you're prepared to give. Not that you physically can't do it, but there's other people coming in mm-hmm. all the time, which creates a bottleneck. We're not in a, you know, we're not in a um, environment to do that. And you never know what is going to come in your door in an emergency department. There's no planning for so many things. They, you know, you may have 
a trauma roll up on the on the <laughs> the ramp. Yeah. You may have someone show up that's uh, decompensating when they get to your door. Um, and so you've got to give attention to those very acute things. Uh, and But you've got all these other uh, needs that are very important, and many of those are very critical. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it's not, um, it's just not intended for that kind of care. That needs people that are focused right mm-hmm. on those individuals. They're staffed appropriately for it. And their mindset is to take care of that sort of patient. Um, and meet those needs, and they have everything they need to do that. You can't keep your eyes on multiple patients and give them the attention that they need um, and provide the excellent care that you want to if you're if you're overburdened in numbers. I mean, one person to 10, 15 people is not by any means what yeah. we would want. So, you know, as a, I'm a... Uh, acute care nurse practitioner, mm-hmm. so uh, uh, mostly working in an ICU setting. Mm-hmm. And you know, what you're saying is very true. Um, we'll have situations where we have to go manage ICU patients in an emergency room. And from an infrastructure standpoint, from a building standpoint, that's not an ideal place to be managing patients who are on ventilators and multiple uh, vasopressors. Um, so I can see where that can uh, be a problem on its own. So. For our listeners, for people who are listening out there, you know, clinicians and non-clinicians, what is your message for those people in terms of how do we uh, take care of this problem? How can they help take care of this problem? I think the first place for us to start is by making sure that the public is well educated in what the emergency department's purpose is and what their capacity is. Mm Uh, I think p- during the pandemic, some of that came to light for for folks. They really began to see that maybe what they had going on at the time did not fit the criteria that needed emergency and might need urgent care or their own physician or might be something they could manage initially at home. Um, and that's with parameters set for them to understand what might be a very serious problem, not to ignore that. but. Right. Um, that's the first place that I really think we need to start. And I think we need to do that on multiple levels, um, not not just hit and miss. It needs to be strategic and planned and how, how we're going to do that. And we need to continue that message um, because we want people to get what they need in, in the correct place so they all get the best care for whatever is going on with them. Um, I think that we really should take excellent care of our healthcare providers and uh, find out what it is that they need to be able to continue at the pace that we're at right now. Um, You know, there's fatigue syndrome that can come on for anyone in any job setting, whatever. But when when you're unable to give the care that you want to give or you can't give it in a timely it timely enough manner um, for a patient when you're there. That's what you your desire is is to care for people. That really can have a great impact. It can cause people to step away from the profession mm-hmm. as a whole. Um, so I think those are a couple of places yeah. that we can impact. 
Do you think that that's what's been happening in our nursing profession is that they're stepping away because of that or at the symptom? I'm sure it's just a symptom. Um, you know, I, I believe, because, and I'm saying this from my own, yeah. my own impression, I believe we had a, a lot of um, challenges before the pandemic. Mm. I do think the pandemic brought things to light, though, that were already festering in so many ways. I It appears to me that the mental health or behavioral health, um, healthiness or wellness of folks has been impacted by those two, three years that we were in the major yeah. um, holes of, of um, COVID. And I don't, uh, I think we're going to have to get to a new, um, a new era of wellness as a whole to mm-hmm. be able to get through this. Mm-hmm. I, the first thing is to identify that you have a problem in an area. And I'm, and this is not just for behavioral health. I mean, it might be that um, we're not taking care of ourselves well enough. And, and we really need to start back at basics to do that. We can't take care of others if we're not taking care of ourselves. And um, nurses in general give, 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 and they've always put themselves on the back burner. And I'm not saying that we want to not um, give our patients everything that we have. I do think we should, but I, I think we cannot do that without taking care of ourselves first. So, you know, I, I think, you know, I can't avoid but, you know, mention what happened during the pandemic is the messaging was was quite good, actually, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, triaging yourself. So you have these symptoms, all right? Um, you're short of breath, you have a cough, but um, your oxygen saturation is not too low. Okay, so here's what you need to do. Maybe do some over-the-counter stuff. When your oxygen saturation drops, go to the emergency room. I think those are some of the lessons that we can, you know, take in terms of the public messaging uh, regarding certain disease processes to avoid, you know, overcrowding uh, uh, patients in the emergency room. We should do a better job in terms of educating the public. Hey, you may have this symptom, but it does not warrant you to go to the emergency room just yet. Maybe you can have a teleconference with your physician or go to your physician's office uh, or, you know, go to an urgent care. I think we need to do a better job with uh, the messaging to the public, like you mentioned. I agree with you. Um, So I guess somebody, you know, would also argue, okay, so why don't we just build more hospitals, more emergency rooms? You know, why don't we just do that? You know, that will solve most of the issues. What would you say about that? Um, You've heard if if you or if we build it, they will come. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I think... um, that just building more space to care for people in does not by any means create more healthcare providers or yeah. healthcare team members. Um, and, you know, you've got to think about this too. We, we have a finite amount of healthcare resources in persons, but also in equipment, supplies, medications. Um, Sending a message that we've got plenty of room, you know, please come right on in, um, in a in a setting of not having enough 
access outside of a hospital for patients to take be taken care of. And um, I think it sets up a false expectation for the public to think, well, you've got room for me. You should have everything else that I need when you come in. We have to work on all of these shortages that we have um, before we can bring more people into a healthcare area. And by all means, it's the pre-hospital or outside access to just good basic healthcare that is needed. We might be able to make people people healthier um, and they won't need to come to the emergency department. We, we see people on their worst day. People don't want to be there. I mean, certainly there may be some that feel better there than wherever they're coming from, but for the majority, they don't want to be there. And so we need to take care of them before they ever have a reason to be there. That's my thought on it. I completely agree with that. And I I made a note to ask about what specific kind of pre-hospital care you're speaking about for our listeners. What kind of things? Well, I mean, let me start with, I think that we need more clinic access and clinic providers. Um, Even even this door-to-door healthcare Mm -hmm. that we used to have before we had automobiles, you know, the doctor um, or, or and their nurse or whatever would go to your home and take mm-hmm. care of you. I see that being a reality again, and it's going on. I mean, we have we have wonderful providers that are out there going to people's homes and seeing about them. We have telehealth. Mm-hmm. Telehealth really made its huge stand during the pandemic, but we can do so much. BJ, you mentioned. Um, being able to talk to your your healthcare provider from home or whatever, be able to conference with mm-hmm. them without leaving your home, and it might send you to where you need to be, but it also might be able to to allow you to stay there and take do self care mm-hmm. for some things. Um, we also have something called community paramedicine. You may have read about that. Yeah. Um, so that's the fire services taking care of their own communities because they are trusted members of the yeah, community. So yeah. that is a way to keep patients from bouncing back to hospitalizations. You know, we we discharge people with the best intentions, giving them their teaching and giving them prescriptions and whatever else that they need and telling them what to do. But what if they don't even have those things or know how to access those things? So the um, many fire services across the country have started community paramedicine and, and they actually will go out in between calls or whatever and see, or they may have a special group of of uh, paramedics or EMS personnel who go out with um, a social worker or, yeah, and take care of those things. Um, I had the privilege of seeing that in action with Birmingham Fire and Rescue, and I think they're doing a wonderful job of taking care of their community members, and it truly has decreased bounce backs to the emergency department or readmissions to the hospital. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I said I hadn't heard of that, but I have. I just didn't hear it called that umbrella Mm -hmm. term, but I have a friend who's a firefighter, and the stories that he tells are 95% not fighting fires. And I was amazed at all of the just care that they give members of the community for whatever might be called. They called for mm-hmm. seeing people on the street that need help. You know, they know members of the community that 
unfortunately are without homes. And yeah. so they may wow. see them frequently, but they know them by name and they, they provide care for them um, driving around in their fire truck. So mm-hmm. they, yeah, that's amazing. That's an amazing service. And why not utilize their, their training and their expertise? Yeah. that That's just another piece of the emergency healthcare team yeah. that's available, yeah. but they're doing, you know, um, that they, they do so many wonderful things. They, there are, uh, units amongst the um, fire services in the United States that employ emergency nurse practitioners mm-hmm. or nurse practitioners. I was as actually part going their... to ask the, yeah. that yeah. question there. You just stole my thunder. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry, BJ. <laughs> I get so excited as, about it because I, I would love yeah. to do that. Yeah, because just a light bulb just uh, so came on. For the f- yeah. Fire department? Yes. Oh. Some are employed by the fire service. Some may be employed by a municipality or yeah. whatever. But um, take somebody that's got a background in emergency services with, you know, within a hospital even, or they have been a paramedic in the past, and you put all these pieces together um, and some experience, education, and a, an absolute passion for people. Mm-hmm. And you send them out there as a colleague um, in a team like that. What a fun job. Oh, I know. I'm, I'm getting excited <laughs> talking about it. I'm surprised you're not doing that. My next me. career. <laughs> yeah. No, I would yeah. love to do that. Yeah, and I, I don't think we're going off on a tangent here, but I yeah. think that is very important, you know, because like you mentioned, those firefighters or those departments know their community. Yeah. What value can that have when you have an emergency nurse practitioner uh, who is embedded in that uh, right. that department? They can offer emergency services without you know going you know just the basic stuff you know without right. having to overburden the actual emergency rooms. And I know we do have our urgent cares, but I think that's another added um, you know uh, source of healthcare that they can yeah. individuals can seek. You know the urgent care centers take care of a lot mm-hmm. of patients oh, too, yeah. um, and they may have extended waits at times. I guess it depends on where they're located or on any given day, but they they definitely could benefit from um, patients being taken care of in the in the best way they can. That is beyond having to to come in and and have care. And I mean that no care is free, right? Mm-hmm. There's no way to to provide care and not have some cost yeah. to someone yeah. in there. So I think that's a really good way to do that. Well, I, I, I love the creative solutions, which I think also in turn will help with all of the healthcare provider shortages that we have mm-hmm. from nurses to physicians to have these creative solutions and reignite the passion of oh, yeah. caring for people um, under a system where we feel like, oh, we really are making a difference. And, and at the same time, taking care of ourselves, mm-hmm. and, but knowing we're doing that good work. So I think these creative solutions are really going to be hopefully what, what can fix it or something that will help at least. Yeah. You know, the other thing is the trust factor. What you said about them knowing them mm-hmm. or they're implanted already in that community and a member of the community makes a huge difference in uh, being able to share back and forth between patient mm-hmm. and healthcare provider. Yeah. No matter who it is and so what a great thing yeah. to have so i know we've talked about a lot here um what do you think the future is in emergency medicine i think that we are going to have to create more efficient ways of providing emergency care 
Um, there aren't enough physicians. There aren't enough nurses, nurse practitioners, and other healthcare providers. I think we're going to have to look at our team and um, think of more efficient ways to do what we do. Um, I know that there uh, there's popular and unpopular belief in some of some of my thinking, um, but you can't you can't care for people when you don't have resources to do that, right? So there are so many things that a, a nurse or an emergency nurse practitioner even can do um, to that are tasks that physicians or or um, well, physicians in general, because they um, many of these things are what they do or have done traditionally. I think that there are tasks that we could take on that would um, would spread the care more evenly, yeah. so that we can get from it um, walking into an emergency department uh, to discharge or admission much more quickly. Uh, and and you know. We're all about safe care, all of us, mm -hmm. and quality care. I think that it would make the patient experience much better mm -hmm. if we look at how we can leverage what we already have and spread it more evenly uh, by tasks. Yeah. Well, you know, we're running out of time, but yeah, and I think we can, we can go forever talking about this issue because it's something that is affecting us right here, right yeah. now. Um, any parting words that you have for our listeners today? Yes. Um, let me just say that emergency um, care is not exactly how it's portrayed on TV. So if we have folks listening that have never really worked in that area. It's not for just anyone, but if you absolutely love it, it it's the best career in the whole wide world. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it's... I've been doing this for over 40 years in one role or another, and I cannot imagine doing anything else. It's it's who I am. And there's so many other colleagues that I've had over the years who feel the same. Um, you know, if, and the good thing about nursing in general, if you get into an area and you find out that it's not really meeting your needs or challenging you or whatever, Look at all the other things we can do. Good grief. A nurse can do anything. You can work anywhere. You have so many, so many characteristics and tools to do that. But it, you will never be bored if you work in emergency services, I can promise you. And it, it will give you um, experiences that will make you um, truly a better person, not just a provider. Um, and I, I would like to say that, um, you know, we have professional organizations out there that have all kinds of information that are available mm -hmm. to anyone that's curious and wants to read more. I mean, we have the Advanced Emergency Nursing Journal, for one thing. Mm -hmm. um, take a look at that. See if there's anything that, that would interest you there that would um, make you want to look further into the possibility of being in this field. But even as a nurse, the Journal of Emergency Nursing is available and has all kinds of information that 
you can you can read about and see, does that even make me excited? Yeah. I think you should be excited about whatever you choose to do. Yeah. <laughs> I really do. Yeah. Melanie, thank you so much for joining us. Um, always wonderful to talk to you and to see you. So we appreciate all of your service over the years and everything that you've done for so many people throughout your career. It's just a wonderful resource for information. And we'll provide the links for those resources that you mentioned in our show notes that people can have access to those. Uh, To our listeners, thank you for joining us. And we will see you next time on Clinical Pearls. Thank you. Thank you.